You're listening to the Fertility Academy podcast, episode 19. Today, I'm talking with social worker Leah McAuliffe about mental health while going through fertility treatments. Leah shares her own story in a lot of detail, which does involve grief and loss. So I want to offer a trigger warning. Welcome to Fertility Academy, a podcast where we provide you with information and tools to help you optimize your fertility to grow your family no matter where you are in your fertility journey. We offer interesting, creative, and evidence-based information and give you practical tools to help you get closer to your goal of building a family. I'm your host, Michelle Kapler. I'm a fertility-focused acupuncturist and Chinese medicine practitioner, board-certified fertility specialist and fertility coach with over 10 years of experience helping my patients build their families. I'm so glad you're here with us. Let's get on with the episode. Hello and welcome. Thank you so much for being here with us today. In this episode, I'm sharing a conversation with Leah McAuliffe. Leah and I met when she was my patient years ago, and she's now somebody who I not only consider a colleague in the fertility world, but also a friend. This is both both an educational and fertility story-based episode. Leah is a social worker and mental health professional and has been for many years. Her own path to parenthood has inspired her professionally to offer her support to those going through reproductive challenges and the fertility community is lucky to have her. Today, we're going to talk very honestly about her story, and she's going to share some insights about mental health and the tools she found helpful along the way. Before I share the interview, I want to offer Leah's bio. Leah lives in Milton, Ontario. She's a mother and a social worker with a bachelor and master's degree in social work. She's a registered member of the regulatory body Ontario College of Social Workers and Social Service Workers a member of the Ontario Association of Social Workers, and also the Ontario Association of Mental Health Professionals. Leah has been in the business of helping people for more than 16 years and has worked in community mental health, harm reduction, substance use programs, serving homeless and economically marginalized populations in the city of Toronto. Parenthood began in the most challenging and painful way possible for Leah and her partner, Brendan. In 2015, after struggling with fertility and using assisted reproductive technologies for about four years by that point, Leah went into premature labor at 19 weeks and two days gestation, and their firstborn daughter, Aveline, died. After subsequent IVF treatments, their son, Finley, was born in 2016, and twins Charlotte and Adeline completed their family in 2019. Leah is considering a compassionate embryo transfer her for two for her two remaining frozen embryos. Leah founded Conceive Resilience to meet an unmet need that she herself struggled with when she couldn't find the right providers or programs to support her mental health in the way she needed at the time. Leah is committed to ensuring Conceive Resilience helps to fill the gaps by providing one-to-one support, education, and counseling, and free and easy access to coping and resiliency support for people who are using ART to build their families. These days, when she's not busy in a house full of noise and energetic kids, Leah is either talking with her own therapist or using her mindfulness tools to recover from her traumatic fertility-related experiences. Learning to live with the grief of losing her firstborn child is a work in progress and for now her hobby. That and learning how to grow a square foot vegetable garden with her kids and finding time to hike the beautiful trails in and around Halton region. So without further delay, let's play that interview with Leah. Okay, welcome Leah. Thank you so much for being on the podcast with us today. Thanks for having me. So I've already read your professional bio in the introduction, but if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, that'd be great. Sure. Well, I'm Leah and I'm a social worker and a mother. 
Um, before coming a becoming a mother, I was working in community-based mental children's mental health agencies, but actually it was with young people between the ages of 16 to 24. And then I eventually was also working with adults throughout my rest of my career. Um, but I started off in a, in a drop-in setting, working with homeless youth um, who were using substances and having mental health challenges and just dealing with the reality of being homeless and economically um, marginalized from the rest of society. And I just, I really felt like I belonged in that agency. It, it was a place where I really explored my own sense of self. And I felt really awesome working on that team of people and with the community that I worked with there. It, it was a really, really great workspace. And I learned so much and everybody really taught me how to be. I, I was young when I started working. I was only 24, fresh out of university. And, and working in this place really just expanded my horizons and really gave me that practical work experience. Um, and the reason it relates is because I ended up being a peer program coordinator. So I worked with people who had lived experience with homelessness. Um, and I, I helped train them to convey public health messages around reducing the harms associated with drug use and hepatitis C and SCIs and all of that. Um, and they, they taught me probably more than I taught them about how to, if you're going to use drugs, how to use drugs safely in the environment that you're in, rather than saying it's a bad thing or how to have sex. Um, rather than saying, don't do that, we assume you probably will. And if you are, here's how you're going to do it safer. And we paid people to work with us. Um, so that is the first time I really understood the power of lived experience and how, in some ways, it's more powerful to convey messages through people with lived experience than it is me as a social worker, this professionally trained person conveying messages that maybe don't land right for people. So that's been a really, really influential way of thinking and way of working for me as a social worker throughout the rest of my career. Um, and then I eventually had a real personal struggle that really hit home for me. And, and that's what brings me to doing what I'm doing now. I'm very passionate about giving pointing people to their own inner strength when it comes to actually surviving this thing that is fertility treatments and, and using assisted reproductive technology for the chance of getting pregnant. Like there really are no guarantees with that. And I've been through it for about nine years in order to, it was successful for us. So that's a very good thing. But in some ways I, I feel like the experience for me really has kind of ruined a certain aspect of my personality. Like I've been really, I've become really bothered and weighed down by the weight of the journey on my shoulders. And so maybe I'm not explaining it very well, but <laughs> my past work experience and honoring people with lived experience brings me to today where I actually know that I have a message to share because I have that lived experience. And when I couple that with my professional experience as a social worker, I really feel motivated to help people from that place of I've been there too. And this is what helped me. I'm not going to 
I don't know if I can swear, but I'm not going to bullshit you about like doing ABC and it's really going to get you pregnant. I'm not really sure, but I know that there are tools out there that can help you feel better about what you are experiencing. And I hope that message lands for people because it's super hard. I've been there and I am pulling myself through it by doing certain things. So that's a bit about me and how I got here. Like it's, it's a, it, there's a lot, Michelle. Oh my goodness. There's a lot I could say. <laughs> well, thank you for that introduction. And we're certainly going to get more deeply into it. Um, and, yeah. and for the record, you can swear if you'd like. Um, so, you know, just to summarize, you are somebody who supports people and their mental health throughout mm-hmm. fertility challenges, assisted reproductive technology treatments, okay. and then perhaps even in the area of grief and loss, uh, you know, following things that might go in that direction during the process. Am I correct? Yes, that's that's a very short way of putting it. Yes. Okay, perfect. <laughs> but I do really appreciate hearing about kind of coming full circle because I actually didn't know that. I, I don't think mm-hmm. I put those those pieces together with you, even though you and I have known each other for a couple of years now. Um, mm-hmm. Leah and I started our relationship as, you know, I was her acupuncturist. And then, you know, now we've kind of come to a place where I consider her a colleague in the fertility world and also a friend. So nice. this all feels really nice to talk on the podcast today. Mm -hmm. So first, I wanted to ask you about your fertility journey. I'd like to ask you to share what that's been like for you. And, you know, maybe you can summarize or not summarize, you can share as many details as you want about your own experience. And then we can go from there. Sure. I guess my fertility journey started when I was about 17. And I was no longer getting my period. Um, and I went to the doctor and all of the testing was done and they determined that I had polycystic ovarian syndrome. And my story is exactly the same as anyone else. Um, well, I'm not sure if it's exactly the same, but the commonalities are there. They put me on the birth control pill. I said, Hey, great. And I carried on completely oblivious to anything I could have done to help myself in that point of time. And my doctor literally said that, oh, oh, and I went on metformin, which is also common. Um, And my doctor literally said, maybe just like try to lose some weight. I wasn't provided with any tools at the time. And I went on my merry way until I was like, I was 17. And I totally went on my merry way until I was about 29 or 30 years old. And in that time, I did try to lose weight here and there, but it wasn't anything that I maintained or was able to stick with. And I I didn't do anything else until I came off the pill and realized just how hard it is to get pregnant when you want to get pregnant. I did not want to get pregnant. So I thought being on the birth control pill was a super solution. Um, And what I know now is that I really could have done a lot of different things to help myself, but I didn't really know and I didn't really look into it. So I think I'm a little bitter about that now that I know how, like how traumatizing everything was, but that this is where I am now. And I have two daughters um, that are living and one boy and I'm going, if they have hormonal health problems, I know what to do now. So I'm trying to take it as a blessing that at least I've had this lived experience. I don't know. So, so yeah, I have PCOS and it was extremely difficult to get pregnant. Um, I think 
we went through 23 cycles over about nine years. Um, I think I, I, a, a lot of these details are actually super foggy. Like I've blocked out a lot of stuff and I had to sit down and chat with my partner about it just to help get him to help me remember what even went on because it was just so hard. I don't even remember. But anyway, I think it was about 23 cycles, about $63,000, tons of medications, tons of needles, tons of waiting, like all the same stuff that people experience. I, I had four IUIs before I went to try IVF the first time. The, I expected that all of this would work when I first stepped my, when I first stepped into the fertility clinic. And I quickly realized that actually none of this is a guarantee. And that was like a big, big shock to me because I was in those days more in a mindset that these medical solutions would work because why wouldn't they work? Because my level of understanding about my body and what was going on was like pretty low at that point in time. So anyway, the more this, these tools didn't work for me, the harder it got, like just an extreme challenge. Um, our first IVF didn't work. The transfers, I had two transfers after it didn't work. That was devastating. We waited some time, um, started a new cycle, and I actually got pregnant um, using letrozole and time sex. I actually got pregnant through that. Um, that, that pregnancy resulted in the death of our daughter, Aveline, and then a bunch of stuff happened. I ended up quitting my job because I found it so stressful to even contemplate getting pregnant again, because I needed to get pregnant again. It was my goal. I just really needed to get pregnant again, but I couldn't cope with being in a workplace where people knew that I was pregnant and then I wasn't and dealing with all of the ways that people try to be helpful, but they're not actually being super helpful when they say various things. I was striving to maintain my professionalism in that place, but it was eating me up being having my vulnerability so exposed to people that I really didn't want to talk to about that. I just wanted to do my job. So I, I took an EI leave, but when I couldn't get disability because it's not really considered a disability and because I couldn't prove that I was mentally ill enough, um, which is another story, but it, it made me so angry that I couldn't continue in that space because I wanted to work there. I tried to get another job within the agency, but not that specific spot where people knew. And anyways, it didn't work out. So I quit. And then I was off for about eight months, just sitting at home, um, staring at a wall, crying my eyeballs out because my baby died. And, and I just wanted her, but I wanted to be pregnant. And um, it wasn't until the fall of 2015, she died on April 1st, 2015. In the fall of 2015, we eventually started our second IVF round. Um, and the first transfer, we transferred one embryo. It did not work. The second transfer, we used two. And that resulted in me being pregnant with our son, Finley. 
Um, <laughs> he was born at, oh, I was hospitalized for two full months, about 10 weeks or so, because I was bleeding and threatening to go into labor, but I didn't for like, for like 10 weeks. And then I, I lived at the hospital. Oh, I had a new job by this point, though, because I, I did need to work like it's unrealistic to stay off for a long time. I got a new job. Um, I didn't tell them I was pregnant until I had to. And then they were actually super understanding and supportive of me. And when I was hospitalized, I was even working from the hospital because I was bored out of my tree. Like I wasn't allowed to even go outside. And, and that sucked so much. It was so hard to feel basically fine, but have this bleeding that just won't stop. Like it wouldn't, it wouldn't hold off for enough days for them to trust that I could be sent home. I actually did get sent home for like maybe a week and a half, but I started bleeding again and I was rehospitalized. Um, so yeah, so our son was born out of that IVF treatment, the second one, the second transfer of the second IVF. And he was born at 34 weeks and two days gestation. So that was our first exposure to what it's like having a baby in the NICU. And I was terrified of him being born early because of losing our daughter, Aveline. Um, and there was a really kind nurse there who I would talk to um, and who really helped me through that and showing me that it, it, would, it would be okay if he was born at these points in, in time and we would celebrate getting farther and farther along. So when he was born at 36 weeks, it was terribly scary, but also it was okay because he just basically needed to get off the feeding tubes and be strong enough to just live in the world. And so that's what we did. And we were eventually transferred to a level two. And then we went home. And I just remember my first thought being like, Oh, my God, what if I die? Like, what is going to happen? If something happens to us, and we have this little guy, just like, I think that might be a common experience for people who have babies and just like have spending so much time in the hospital and feeling really vulnerable. That was what I thought. And anyway, it was a big shock being a parent in under these circumstances. So we carried on our merry way. And like, it was intense, like it is with any new parent having a brand new baby. Um, and it wasn't until maybe four months into him being home with us that I started to really it's it's almost as though I forgot about Aveline during those first four months because having a new baby is is like a huge adjustment and I had no idea what was going on and we were learning and we were in love with him he's the greatest little kid ever and we were so happy to have him and then at about four months in I just started to feel really sad and feel a lot of longing for our daughter and any cool new thing that he would do as a little dude, I'd be like, what about her? And what would that have been like? And I started to realize that if Aveline had have stayed with us, that this is the first time I had those thoughts. If Aveline would have stayed with us, this beautiful boy would have never been born because I would have never have done the second round of IVF. I wouldn't have put myself through it. I would have just accepted what I was given and carry on and life would be so different now if she would have stayed and it's a hard thing to think because I love my son and then what happened later 
I, I love my twin babies. <laughs> um, but, and, and they came from that same second round of IVF, the twins that we have now. But I just, t- I just will always feel longing for our daughter that we never got to, to take home. And it's, it's just something that's with me every day. So we decided that we should use the rest of our frozen embryos in some crazy harebrained idea. We decided to try again. Um, but I got into a disagreement with my fertility doctor. And this is right around the time when I met you, um, Michelle, because I had been going to the naturopaths at uh, the student clinic in Toronto. That that center is excellent. It was, oh, I should say too, like through this whole thing, I tried so many different avenues to support me and my mental health. Like I'm a social worker. I knew I was stressed out and that I needed help coping. But I I found that I wasn't suitable for the programs that were available for a few reasons, some of them being my own disposition. Like I'm an extremely sensitive individual and I avoided group work. Like I avoided group work because I didn't want to sit with others and take on their emotions too because mine were just so super overwhelming and hard to manage that I felt like that wasn't the right fit for me, group work. Although I know group work is an excellent avenue for other people, it didn't feel like the right choice for me because I just take on a lot of stuff as a social worker. It's probably part of my superpower and makes me good at it, but it also it also causes like anxiety and depressive feelings. And sometimes it's hard to sort out what is my mind to own and somebody else's to own and like, where's the boundary. So thankfully I knew that about myself. And I also tried to go to get counseling. Um, but the counselor like ghosted me, like it literally happened where I tried to set up appointments and she just stopped responding. And I just like gave up with it and tried to find my own set of tools. But The truth is, is that it's super hard to social work yourself. Like you can't really social work yourself. My therapist now says like, you can't like dentists don't go and drill their own cavities. Like they don't go and fill their own cavities. So it's kind of like you need as a social worker, your own therapist, it's hard to do it to yourself. So, but I did, I was trying to use tools myself and there are tools that you can use to support yourself. So that's what I was trying to do throughout this time, but it wasn't something I stayed super consistent with um, because it was just so much that I was dealing with through this time. So stressful, so hard. It had so many different impacts on social relationships, work relationships, familial relationships, like just everything. People know the fertility journey is super all like encompassing, impacts everything. It just really does. Um, and maybe maybe people who haven't been through it don't appreciate that or have that sensitivity. But once you have a baby, like we had our son Finley, but none of it went away because of it. And I knew that there was like impending treatments that I had to go through. And I was just more and more anxious and irritable and like moody. And that would have been really hard for my partner and other people around me to manage. Um, Thankfully, Brennan and I, my partner, he's the most solid, loving, supportive person. He's the best person for me. We're best friends. It's super great to have him on board for this wild ride. I don't know like how I could have survived it without him. I'm so grateful for that. Um, 
but it's been really hard. Like we've lost friends. We have an extremely small social circle. Um, and I didn't go back to work. So I've been also, and, and maybe from my answer to the initial question, you can see like, it was a big part of my identity being a social worker. I considered myself helpful and useful, a contributing member of society. And I know that I am as a mother, but it was a really big identity shift to like, get there and to see that I'm, I'm okay, how I am. (laughs) I have enough, I'm doing enough. It's just been a really big challenge to feel that I'm okay, because this has really rocked my world and shook me up. Like, it's been very difficult. So anyhow, Getting back to that, the reason I came to see you was because I was pissed off with my fertility doctor. He wouldn't um, let me use any more of my frozen embryos unless I stopped breastfeeding my son. And I did research on it myself because I'm fully capable of making my own treatment decisions. But he, there's a chance that implantation won't occur if you're still breastfeeding. But I, my opinion was that I have this little boy who still wants to breastfeed, and I still want to breastfeed him. And it is a theoretical chance that I might become pregnant. And I get that I'm supposed to do everything possible to make sure that implantation occurs, but there's stuff that I can't control. And I'm not willing to stop breastfeeding. So he said that he wouldn't treat me and he gave me a referral. So, and at the same time, I was doing stuff to support my own mental health and acupuncture was a wonderful way. Like, I'm not going to pretend I fully understand why acupuncture works. But what I do know is I felt extremely calm and relaxed after my treatments with you, Michelle, and I would plug into my earphones and listen to my meditations. And it was just like a weekly one hour time for me to just chill out. And I super appreciated that. And I loved it. I really enjoyed coming to that. I was mad at my fertility doctor. I went to a new clinic. I had to move my embryos. Like, it was just such a shit show. But anyway, we went to a new clinic that was actually a better fit. And actually, this other fertility clinic had mental health supports built in, whereas the first one didn't. So go figure. In the end, it was a good thing to disagree with my doctor and move on because sometimes you just need to do that. Um, and they, they found something, some scarring, or they thought they found scarring on my uterine lining. But actually, after I got the, the, what's the test called? The exploratory laparoscopy. That's it. Yes, I did that. And they discovered nothing wrong. And I was like, really pissed that I had to do like this somewhat I guess it's not a major procedure, but like, it's still invasive. It It was invasive. And I didn't, I didn't like that. I didn't understand it was a diagnostic tool. Like I didn't get that. But anyway, in the end, I found out that nothing was actually wrong with my uterus. So the new fertility clinic transferred two embryos. I had to advocate for two embryos. They only wanted one embryo. So when both of my embryos took the doctor and my partner and I just laughed like so much because I advocated hard to get two embryos. Did I want to get pregnant with two twins, like with twins? No, not really. So it was really kind of funny um, that that ended up happening. So to make a long story short, I was pregnant with twins. 
I was a high risk pregnancy. I was seeing certain specialists and going for endocrinology appointments all the time because I have also type, oh, the PCOS turned into type two diabetes, like kind of unbeknownst to me, like, obviously those two are related. I didn't really know that I officially had type two diabetes by this point. So, okay, fine. So here we are. <laughs> Our twins were born at 25 weeks and three days gestation. They spent three months in the NICU. That was terribly stressful to be parting ways with our son on a regular basis and figuring out how to juggle being between home and the NICU. Um, do you want to know what else is funny, Michelle? I also spontaneously became pregnant in January because of the one time my partner and I were intimate and I found out that I was actually having a miscarriage when I started to feel strange. And I've only just stopped bleeding from that little scenario. Like I, I don't want to be pregnant right now. So having a miscarriage is like something I'm totally taking in stride. But had I had I had this experience earlier on, oh my God, I just think it's funny and maybe I shouldn't think it's funny, but my reaction to all of this like utter nonsense is like, of course I got pregnant naturally. Sure. Okay, cool. Let's do that too. Well, so, I think anything you're feeling, <laughs> anything you're feeling about it is, is okay. Um, yeah. I mean, that's a pretty recent, that's a surprise that I didn't know yeah. about that you're telling me about right now. I know. Um, hilarious. <laughs> but uh, how, how are you? Oh, I'm, I'm okay. Actually, um, there's, we moved and it's a smaller town and the hospital was like really awesome about it. And I felt taken care of. And there was a gynecologist that I could readily meet with. Like it all went pretty smooth and parts of it were uncomfortable, um, messy, that kind of thing. But, but I'm okay. I'm mm -hmm. okay. I, I, I really just didn't want to be pregnant and I really like on, on a stress level, didn't want to, I I'm glad I had a miscarriage and I'm, I'm okay saying that. Mm -hmm. I know that that would be hard to hear for other people and other people are definitely struggling when they have miscarriages. But in this case, for me, after everything, like we, yeah, it, it also relates to what I want to do with the rest of my embryos, because we do have two more frozen embryos and I'm, I'm, I'm strongly considering doing a compassionate transfer because disposing of them or giving them over to science, um, is just not something that sits with me very well. And maybe we would donate them to another couple who really needs them, but I don't feel good about that either because I just don't feel good about it. So I, I need to go get some counseling, specifically with someone who knows about these sorts of topics on on that but we do have two more frozen embryos left um and it feels a certain way to say that you don't want to use them when you've tried so hard to get here and I feel like they're my babies that is how I feel about it and it's a really hard decision to make so I'm not so we're just going to pay for the storage fees for a while until until I make that decision Brendan feels he doesn't feel as strongly about it as I do. Um, so it will be my decision, whatever we end up doing with those. But I'm strongly considering putting them back in my body at a point in time where I know I won't get pregnant so that it can feel closer to nature. 
I don't know if, if, I don't know. I don't know. That's an interesting option. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. There's yeah. a lot you can do these days. It's, it's too true. Much. It's true. And you don't have to know the answer right now. You, yeah, I think the best exactly. thing you can do is just give yourself time and space to, to figure that out. And you'll know mm -hmm. when you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing all of that so honestly. I think that we tend to really tiptoe around talking about things like this. And I think that people who have a similar story to yours can really benefit from hearing that they're not alone and that other people do go through the same things. Um, yeah. So it's it's interesting because I know what um, you've told me before what happened with your daughter. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to hear that your experience miscarrying recently was, I guess, a more positive experience, obviously mm -hmm. contextually very different than mm -hmm. when your daughter passed away. Mm -hmm. um, but it sounds like the support from the medical institution that you were able to attend was much better. Um, mm -hmm. So do you want to tell us a little bit about what happened with her in the hospital? Yeah, for sure. Definitely the context um, really matters and your place in the journey really matters because when our daughter died, um, so a couple days before it happened, a day before it happened, I was experiencing some sensations and it was the per first time I had been pregnant. So I wasn't 100% sure what the sensations were. I was at work and there was some pressure and I was just like, oh, okay, I feel some stuff. And then I went home and it did become a little bit more intense. So I consulted Dr. Gould to see what was going on. And I found out that it would be too early to be having like Braxton Hicks or anything like that. But when I still felt uncomfortable in the morning, I called our, our midwife and um, she said that it would be good to get checked out, but also I was scheduled to go for a, an ultrasound to do the anatomy scan test that they do roughly at that point in time in the pregnancy. So she said that we would check it out and see, except that by the time I got, I got to the ultrasound place, I was like having contractions that were pretty painful. And I don't even remember what I said to the people at the um at the ultrasound place like i remember coping with the sensations was becoming increasingly more difficult for me um i know now that those pains were really not as bad as they can get but at that point in time i didn't know like what contractions felt like so it was like a surprise to me um so my water broke on the table at the ultrasound place and I was, they called me an ambulance and I was rushed immediately to St. Mike's hospital. So St. Mike's hospital is where all of this happened. And, um, it was very soon after being admitted that I realized our daughter's head was on the like earth side of my cervix and she needed to be born right then. She was being born and, and the midwife came and I remember my mom and dad came and at the time we had a roommate and he came. Those were the people who were there. Um, I, I apparently looked really pale. Like I don't, I don't really remember a lot about this, but our daughter was born. I gave a little push and it was the most terrible thing that has ever happened to me. 
Um, that experience was so shocking. And, and for people who know me, like I'm normally, like I normally deal with stress in a more combative way. Like I'm more the type of person who like needs to hash out the conflict or the stress so that I can feel better about it. But in this moment, I wanted to get out of there. I was so shocked that my, I just, I just couldn't deal with what was happening. So, but I had to deal with what was happening. And our, our daughter was born. I could barely hold her. I could barely look at her. Um, I have memories of seeing our daughter um, being held by Brendan and my mom and my mom just like weeping over her and, and saying goodbye to her. And that's something that I couldn't do. And it's a source of regret and it probably always will be. Um, uh, our, she just, she was in the cot to the left of us and she just died there. And I didn't realize that she was actually alive for about 45 minutes. And I, I have no recollection of, uh, of what her experience was like as, as she was experiencing this. And I, I feel terrible about that. Um, I couldn't hold her. I couldn't look at her. It was a terrible experience. Um, they asked me if I wanted to talk to a, a chaplain and I, I, I said, no, that's also something I wish I, I would have accepted. I wish I would have accepted that, that assistance, but I was very reactive because I'm not religious and I didn't want somebody to come in and I don't even know what I thought they would do, but in hindsight, I think they probably just would have spoken to me. Um, <laughs> and like, probably I imagine anyways, they would have been able to discuss with me some ways that people deal with what's happening. And, and in hindsight, I wish I would have accepted that, but I said no. And I, I signed a consent form for the hospital to participate for us to participate in their compassionate burial program. Because when, because technically our daughter's death was a miscarriage. She was born at 19 weeks and two days. So she was five days shy of what would be classed as a stillbirth. She did not weigh 500 grams and she was under 20 weeks. So she was a miscarriage. So I could just let the hospital basically throw her body away. Or the other option was I could participate in the compassionate burial program. So they would transfer her to a funeral home. They would cremate her and she would be buried in a common infant grave. Or we could take care of her remains ourselves and do whatever we wanted for a funeral or something of that sort. Well, I wasn't able to even cope with the thought of doing any of that on our own. So I signed the consent form for her to be buried in a common infant grave to make a like I have so much to share about all of this stuff but to make a long story short what happened is is they actually lost my consent form and they actually incinerated our baby's remains like they would anybody's like spleen or like I don't know appendix like like any biomedical waste they just threw her away and I didn't know that um until about two years later because it took us about two almost two years our our son was under two 
but it was coming up on two years after she died. And I wanted to go to her grave to see where she was buried. And I had a lot of trouble finding the location with the cemetery because they literally didn't have a record of her because the hospital literally didn't facilitate transferring her there. And there was no Aveline to find at the cemetery because of what occurred. And the way I found out what occurred is because I tried to go see her grave. And when I couldn't, I asked the hospital what happened. And they did an internal investigation because I complained. I, I went to the highest people I could in the hospital to complain. And, and they, they said that they're sorry. They can't find the consent form. She was incinerated. And we will do ABC to make sure this never happens to somebody else. And my biggest thing, say like the, the pathology doctor was sitting to my left and I'm like, can you please make sure that you convey to the person in pathology who made that decision that that was my baby and you just threw her away? Like, do they understand the gravity of what has occurred and what you've taken from me? And this person just like looked somewhat remorseful and just said, yes, I think they understand because they did this investigation and found out what happened. So anyway, I still live with a ton of regret about having made these choices in my like flight mode. I, I have compassion for myself because I understand that there wasn't anything else I could even do. Like my, I, my brain, my body was trying to protect me from like going over the deep end of that level of overwhelm, but it did lead to choices that, that I, I actually do regret. And the only, the only, I guess, Comfort doesn't even feel like a good word to use, but I do feel comforted. I, I guess I just wish I wasn't part of this club, but I do feel comforted by organizations like Pale Network and the wonderful it's the ceremonies that they put on for people so that we can feel that we've said goodbye properly to our babies. But I just, I just really, I'm really tormented by what happened with our daughter and it's the worst thing. Yeah, that's understandable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So after all of this happened, after Aveline died, um, how did that affect future fertility pregnant, uh, sorry, fertility treatments and being pregnant and, in, and even parenting for you in, in the yeah. future? Um, so so I did quit my job because I couldn't cope with the thought of going through these fertility treatments after her death and, and people knowing that she was dead and that I was doing it again. I just couldn't deal with it. Um, so my professional relationships changed and I was, I was definitely like incapable of functioning in a normal way. So I'm, I'm glad that I just gave up trying to be honest. And I'm glad I gave myself that, that leave from work, even though it meant I wasn't earning money and not earning, not earning my wages obviously has an impact, but we were able to figure it out. Um, and I, I'm glad I had that space because it made coping with going through the fertility treatment, like a little easier, not having that, that social aspect, but 
not having a social ask, like a social element to your life is really, really detrimental as well, like not having a circle of, of friends. So I was retreating away from people because I couldn't, I couldn't let people get close to that level of pain. It was just too much and, and sharing it with other people felt even more overwhelming. Um, because people say things that just don't help. And um, I wasn't able to be nice. I don't think when people said things that I reacted to or that triggered me. So I, I avoided that in the workplace, because it's important to maintain professionalism. And when you're breaking down, and you feel like you might yell at people or just behave inappropriately, it's like time to get out. So I'm glad I did that. Um, my subsequent fertility treatments, I, I I think like when it comes to the grief, like I think it kind of got stalled. I don't think I moved through the grief of lo of losing Aveline like in a, I guess none of it's linear. I don't even know. But I think my, my processing of the grief got stalled. Um, and then the subsequent fertility treatment, like the IVF, it was just something to focus on and do and I was very much in doing mode um very amped up very stressed out by it highly anxious um and and getting pregnant with Finn was a relief I was so happy obviously but also I was worried that he would die and I would have to deal with this again especially becoming hospitalized for those 10 weeks um I think the nice thing about the hospitalization if there is a nice thing is that um, Brendan and I really realized like that we were, he was super supportive and just, we love each other. And we really realized that we would be together and there for each other, no matter what. So that was nice, but being hospitalized also made me realize that I don't necessarily have that village of support. And that made me feel sad. Um, that's an aspect of this whole journey is like, where's the village of support? And it makes you realizing that maybe your social network is smaller than you would like is something that's really sad. Um, but the other side of me can't really blame people or be angry because I know that I'm not the center of anybody else's world. And we live in separate communities far apart from each other. Like, the way we do family life and social networks these days is not that helpful. We don't have close knit communities anymore. And so I can't blame people for getting on with their lives. P the people I knew had children easily and their children were all older. So going through this just felt extremely lonely. Um, yeah. And I was, I, I was worried that Finley would die too. And he didn't, but we had the NICU experience and that was an eye opener, an experience I also never wanted to have. Um, but then we did the NICU again for even longer. Um, this time parenting a little kid who didn't understand what was going on. So, so I'm sure you gained a lot of insights into stress and mental health from your experiences. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us some of those insights? Yeah, the, the thing I really learned is that 
that any time I actually did apply my mindfulness tools in a consistent way, like when I was really using those tools, I was, I had the experience where I really saw like, you know, there, there is a way to not have my habitual reactions. There is a way to rest and practice mindfulness that spontaneously lets you have new insights. And it's a very difficult thing to explain. But when I meditated regularly, and now when I meditate regularly, I'm able to I'm able to deal with the stressor in a more creative way. And I think that that's amazing. Um, now as a parent, our household is loud. Our household is filled with chaos. And I actually find that kind of thing super triggering. Like, I don't know if it's the three months of the bells ringing off in the NICU that sets me off with noise, or if it's just that kid noise is extremely irritating. <laughs> It's probably both, but loud noises and and the stress of hearing loud noises just sets me off. But now that I now I'm working with my therapist and I'm practicing these tools again and I'm seeing what I saw then, which is that you actually can have a more creative response to your stressful environment when you when you practice meditation and mindfulness and the reason is is because you're giving yourself that chance your nervous system is getting that chance to actually calm the f down and that is what i needed then during all of this and it is what i need now as a parent to these these beautiful but crazy little kids so what i learned is that i i also found supportive professionals i did find a counselor Eventually, I kept trying. I did feel like giving up when I got ghosted, but I did kept keep trying and I found somebody and I'm seeing somebody different now. So there is that. I also think that I that being open to different sorts of treatments, like I didn't know that acupuncture could help my mental health and my experience of grief. And, and it helped me, I believe, prepare for the pregnancy that I had with the twins. So it had that effect, but it also was a very calming experience. So what I learned is like, is that mental health isn't only treated by people like me, like social workers and psychiatrists or therapists or whatever, but you can actually seek alternative treatments that are very supportive to what you're trying to do. So, yeah. Yeah. I I think it's also important to keep in mind that it's going to look different for everybody. Um, sometimes it's just about trying different things and seeing what's going to resonate with you because for some people, acupuncture is absolutely not a common experience. And it's one of those things where you just have to try it and see if, if that effect is what's going to happen for you. And it's the same thing with therapists for if, if a colleague or a friend has a really good experience with a therapist, the next person that comes along might not have good chemistry with that therapist. So a lot of the time, unfortunately comes down to trial and error sometimes, Mm -hmm. Yeah. And being open to doing that and keep trying, it's, it's really hard to keep trying things and failing at them during the whole fertility experience. But like, it's not a personal failure. It's really hard to keep it in mind that it's not a personal failure, but keep trying for sure. My perseverance astounds me. Like I really, really wanted to have kids as you can tell. And, and now that I'm here, I sometimes think like, 
that's another thing I've learned about mental health. I, I sometimes think that I made the worst mistake of my life, like becoming a parent and, and putting myself through such a grueling experience, because I feel like all the sour, nasty parts of my personality have come to the forefront because of the level of stress I've been under. Um, I, I sometimes feel like people don't like me because my level of intensity is too much for them to cope with. And I feel like it's hard for people to be around me because, because they don't know how to deal with how my energy makes them feel. On one hand, I have sympathy for that because I am a lot and it has been intense. And, and what I learned though, is that other people have their own pain and I have my pain and sometimes it just bumps up against each other and it creates really big um, miscommunication and, and unintended hurt feelings. But if I practice my mindfulness tools and if I sit down and calm my nervous system, I actually have the ability to be more creative in my responses to other things that I just can't control. Like, so it's not... It's not that um, meditation and mindfulness tools will cure like large scale mental illness, but in terms of overall mental wellness and, and coping skills and dealing with every, everyday stressors, parenting stressors, or the stress that comes from going through fertility treatments, you actually can improve your overall mental outlook by using these tools. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, I just want to say from my perspective, your ability to use your loudness to cut through everything and be brutally honest, I think is your strength. And I think that your clients and the people that you help are going to really, really benefit from that. And again, it's a so. matter of there are lots of different types of therapists with lots of different types of approaches. And it's like any approach. It's about finding the person that matches you. But I think the people that resonate with that are really going to resonate with that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's going to inevitably be your gift to the people that need your help. I hope so. I, I know that I don't sit well with people who feed me too much bullshit. So I hope that I can offer that to somebody else. I think yeah. people, I think there that are some people space. that really, yeah. really need that. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's, it's in a, in a context that sometimes is filled with so much bullshit and it's coming from a, a it's usually coming from a good place, but mm -hmm. my goodness, some people just they're trying to be helpful, but they just don't <laughs> say the right thing. And I yeah. think that honesty can, and, and really being straightforward about these things and talking about how fucking hard it can be, mm -hmm. can really be a gift to people. Yeah, I think so too. Um, it's really, I, I understand it's really, really hard to sit in the space and like live in the space that this pain causes this pain is is something I I hadn't any clue about prior to experiencing it myself. And so for the people in my personal circle who had trouble sitting with me in it, I understand why people had trouble sitting with me in it. And um, I'm sorry that I had hurtful responses. And I hope that they're sorry for the unkind things that they said. Um, because tons of unkind things were said to us 
and I, I barked really loud and I know that that hurt people and I'm sorry. And I believe they're sorry for hurting me unintentionally as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm just saying it's, it's, I, I, I hope that I can help people's friends and family as a social worker as well, not just the fertility patients themselves who are dealing with the stress, but as a social worker, I know I can help loved ones manage and navigate these troubled times as well, because, because other people need an outlet when they're witnessing their loved ones in so much pain. People's loved ones want to help, but they just don't know how. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping to be able to support people in, in that kind of thing as well down the road. I think that's great. <laughs> yeah. So I think that, um, you know, you're obviously, and, and everybody who experiences something this huge and this traumatic is going to be always going through it. I mean, you don't stop going through something like this. You're always moving through the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Um, but, uh, you know, you've been going through it for, well, you said six years now. And so if somebody's listening who is just in the beginning of going through it, would you have any advice for them? What would you want them to know? Well, people might find it frustrating to hear what my advice in this regard actually is. Um, But when people say like, just relax, um, it's, it's super frustrating to hear people say just relax. But I actually think that deliberately resting and deliberately engaging your parasympathetic nervous system is super important. So my advice is figure out a way to incorporate daily rest into your fertility cycle monitoring, just like every single day, figure out how to incorporate 20 minutes, half an hour, whatever suits your schedule to to use the tools that will relax your nervous system. So if you're creative, use your creative outlet. If you're a little bit more lazy like me, use a guided meditation. Um, I think using putting in my earbuds and, and listening to a guided meditation is the easiest way. I found that to be the easiest portable way. Like you can plug it in and go for a walk or you can plug it in and sit in a chair. You can lay down. Um, you could do gentle movement exercises you could do yoga or or something like that or exercise in a moderate way not not a strenuous way a moderate way like there's tons of things you can do breathing practices to engage that part of your body that wants to help you calm the f down and i feel like i feel like i could have really used someone to hold my hand and show me how to do that in a consistent way I did it in a haphazard way and I still got benefit and I still got insight, but I think I would have managed so much better if I did it consistently. And when I'm talking about consistently, I'm not talking about perfectly. Like I really love the rule from nutrition, the 80, 20 rule. It's like, do it 80% of the time. You're human. You might not do it the whole time, but strive for 80% of the time and you will get benefit. And I, I think it's the same for this. So my advice is, is to figure out how to incorporate a rest period where you can meditate or do something of that sort to, to calm down your nervous system. Because the reality is, is fertility treatments put you in that fight or flight 
response like continuously and you, you, you need to rest from it. That's really good advice. Thank you so much. Yeah. So again, I want to thank you for sharing so honestly with us. I think that people need to hear stories like this. Um, and if anybody resonates with your message or your style, I know that you do work with people, um, both um, on an, in an online context and you do one-on-one -on -one work. So how do people get in touch with you? And if you have any tools that you want to share, love to hear about that. Sure. Um, I have my website, uh, conceiveresilience.com. And I'm just starting out in this whole endeavor. So I have my website up and I'm under the same name on Facebook and Instagram. Um, and if people log onto my website, there is a free download there. Um, I call it the Artful Pause Workbook. And there's a, a, a six-step outline on how to get started with what I'm talking about here, creating deliberately creating space to rest in your routine and some some tips on how to get started. And I've included two free audio um, guided meditation downloads, one for walking and one for laying down. So hopefully people can connect with one of those tools. That's perfect. Thank you so much. That's very generous. I'll make sure that I include all of that information in the show notes so people can click through to that easily. Leah, thank you again. I really appreciate you coming on and telling your story. Michelle, sharing this has been really freeing for me. I've never spoken publicly about any of it. So I'm very grateful that you asked me to participate. So thank you. So that was my interview with Leah. I deeply appreciate her willingness to speak so frankly about these subjects. If this conversation resonated with you, I highly recommend reaching out to work with Leah in a therapeutic context. I'll post all of her information in the show notes. That's going to be it for me today. I'll be back with another episode next Wednesday. Until then, take care. Thank you for joining us on Fertility Academy. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you loved our content today, please be sure to leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share it with someone who you think might find it helpful. Don't forget to subscribe to be the first to be notified of new episodes. A new one comes out every Wednesday. To keep in touch with us and to continue the conversation, you can find us over on Instagram at Fertility Academy or join us on our private Facebook group, the Fertility Academy Community, 